Hello, Flo. How, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I'm told out. Uh, you, th- you sound like you're quite close to the mic right now. Oh, okay. I could be because I'm on the mm. earphones, but I can... Uh, okay, is that better? Okay, yeah, this is great. Uh, thank you. Uh, I'd like to welcome you to Stage Fright. And I'm quite sure you've listened to a few episodes, so you know what's happening. Yes, I have. Yeah, we don't do any introductions, so we're just going to start off with the first question. Okay, cool. Cool. So, um, what is the one thing you wish that you knew about entrepreneurship 10 years ago? Okay. Um, actually, I just wish I I never had the perception that it, it is the difficult because it can be as simple as that. So you the perception you know, that one identify a problem. You find it's a, a perception that it was a difficult thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it really, I think that kind of stands in the way of a lot of what we do in mm-hmm. that, you know, we develop all kinds of mental blocks and emotional roadblocks because in our minds, we believe that it is, it is, it is just this most complicated thing. Mm-hmm. But it really, it really doesn't need to be. It really, really doesn't need to be. It can get quite involved, yes, we agree, but it is a fairly straightforward equation. And Mm -hmm. if we just keep that in mind, a lot of what we build around it would not um, would not be necessary. Mm -hmm. What are some of the things people have said to you that have fueled that disconnect? Well, um, I suppose it's both a positive and a negative in that, um, of, of course, when, when you become an entrepreneur, there must be a fairly um, intrinsic understanding that if there's going to be success, there's obviously mm-hmm. going to be failure. But... Mm-hmm. Um, I just wish that it was painted like that, as opposed to you are definitely going to fail. <laughs> okay. And who yeah, has ever because... looked at you yeah. doing uh, some entrepreneurial project and said, ah, well, nah. it, it'll, it'll fall by that thing. Oh. Ah, oh, that's actually an interesting question. Um... I don't have people like that around me. Wow, I must say. Lucky. I don't, maybe they think it. Maybe they think it. They just mm-hmm. uh, maybe They just don't want to say it to me in my face. But <laughs> no, okay. But and I've never had people so so negative outwardly. You know. Okay. Okay. Um. Then, um, where did your journey with entrepreneurship start? Then? Um, it started when I was, um, actually, I went to business school in 2012, and I went to business mm-hmm. school to do a master's in management in entrepreneurship and new venture creation. Mm-hmm. And that was actually the first um, kind of surprise, I should say, because I expected to be taught the, you know, the the what? Of what you do on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Of what you do on a daily basis. But um, it really was around the the broad concept of entrepreneurship, which I didn't really appreciate as much as I appreciate now being an ecosystem. But that was um, when the journey started. Essentially, at the end of 2012, I left mm-hmm. um, corporate work. And I set out on my entrepreneurship journey. Mm-hmm. And what has been the peak so far for you? 
or what you believe has been the peak for, for you? I think the peak for me is what I'm doing now, I must say. Um, mm -hmm. Which is? Uh, well, broadly, um, we do um, uh, generally innovation consulting in the agri-food space. So we get to speak with a lot of agripreneurs and just that just the ability to do that is really inspiring and for them to trust you with your um input into what they are doing is just incredible mm -hmm. um you know it could be better obviously because you know um i, I just don't believe we have yet we uh, we have maximized the opportunity yet but mm -hmm. i just really that's what i'm doing right now okay and I hear you say you left corporate in 2012 or so. So mm. w given the option, uh, continue down the entrepreneurship path or go back to corporate, what would happen and why? Um, that option has presented itself quite a few times. Hands, I must say. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I think I've been lucky enough to be able to avoid it because I've been able to, um, to when I've needed to, find work that is outside of corporate mm -hmm. and work that I feel is a lot more meaningful and um, where my input can go a lot further than it does, or at least it would. Yeah in a corporate environment. So I think I've just been fortunate like that, but, you know, maybe it's just the universe knowing that that's just not the environment for me and, you know, just presenting other options. <laughs> mm -hmm. interesting. Yeah. So uh, I hear you using this word, agripreneur as well. Uh, yes. Or, yes. Why are you guys inventing a new word? Uh, I, I take it it means agricultural entrepreneur. Yes, it does. Is the space booming that much that you guys need a whole word? Yeah, actually. Yeah, actually. Mm. And it is important that we make that differentiation. Because we mm. assume that agripreneurs can be clustered into one group with all other entrepreneurs. And I mean, we must remember that ag agripreneurs exist in every single field that exists, whether it's in technology yeah. or finance or engineering or um, biotechnology. Really, every single field that you can think of exists within agriculture. Um, mm -hmm. However, the nuances of agriculture influences those fields such that agripreneurs cannot be clumped together with other practitioners in those fields. It's very important to make the differentiation because mm -hmm. I do feel that um, that because all along we haven't necessarily made that, that differentiation that um, we haven't put entrepreneurs in their rightful position as essentially you know um, forerunners or um, trendsetters or mm -hmm. really people who can buck the trend in the trajectory of entrepreneurship okay yeah Okay. So my question is, uh, when does an entrepreneur become an entrepreneur? Well, uh, remembering, of course, that agriculture is not just farming, as in like sticking seeds in the ground and expecting something to grow or looking after some animals in order to use them for food, but it really covers the entire spectrum of how food, fiber, and, you know, um, energy, how other um, um, uh, materials, I suppose, 
come from natural resources for us to be able to use them. So really the entire spectrum. So when you mm -hmm. think about it, whomever is involved in the creation of food, fiber, energy from, um, you know, from the natural resources or, or at least plants or animals, then that person can be considered an agripreneur. And I okay. suppose it, it, it is tempting to only then cover people who are in business in agriculture. necessarily the case, because people can also be internal entrepreneurs or what they call entrepreneurs, people who work at large corporates, but approach their work from the perspective of innovation or, um, or at least uh, creatively solving the problems that they encounter, um, or at least mm -hmm. that their customers encounter. So I don't necessarily only um, only refer to to business people or entrepreneurs as agripreneurs, but really rather people mm -hmm. who work in the entire agriculture value chain. Okay, cool. So yeah, then my next question is basically related to. The reason I be, I started this podcast, uh, and okay. yeah, um, a lot of mediums are changing because of uh, COVID nineteen and the response to COVID nineteen. And I'm interested in knowing what changes have you noticed in the entrepreneurship space or agripreneurship space that were induced by all the things that have happened in 2020 so far? Um, well, right at the beginning, in fact, we had a conversation with some of the people that are in the network about what we believe the potential impacts would be on agriculture specifically. And the one thing mm -hmm. that stood out is that there, there's always been an, an awareness, but really now there's a deeper appreciation for um, healthy living, obviously, because we are in a life-threatening pandemic. But, and obviously healthy living, a, a, a big chunk of healthy living has to do with healthy eating. Mm -hmm. So I do believe agripreneurs have at least now view their businesses from the perspective of how they can um, they can be part of growing that healthy living trend. Um, different agripreneurs obviously have experienced different types of impact. You can imagine, as I said, agripreneurs exist in literally every single field. So some have been affected more than others. For example, those who are in retail would have been affected a lot more than those who are in, I suppose, um, perhaps primary production in some areas or even food logistics in other areas, because food does need to still, will need to still be produced, does need to still be produced, and it does need to still be transported, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Having said that, though, even those businesses have experienced the level of impact. Because when you think about it, everything changed your business in terms of whom your core customers are. But if you think about it, if you if you are an agripreneur and you are in primary production, for example, and your main customer is the food service or hospitality environment then you would have kind of had to think of your business very differently because yes, indeed, the food is needed, but the way that you get your food to the customer has been deeply impacted. So you would have had to um, not necessarily pivot 100%, but relook at how you arrange your business. So mm -hmm. essentially everyone has been affected because, uh, because consumer behavior generally has been hugely impacted, but the level of impact is really different based on what the different people are doing. Yeah, and 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 not that the the agripreneurship opportunity is is no longer attractive. It is still very much attractive. 
and mm -hmm. you just you just know when you have a look at the level of investments that have gone into um, agri-tech startups or, uh, or or really the level of activity that you see on the ground um, the opportunity is still very much attractive it's just our um, approach to it might be slightly different based on what is happening at a, any given time, knowing, of course, that that um, that the goalposts shift very quickly in pandemic times. You know what I mean? Mm. Okay. Yeah. Mm. yeah uh, you said quite a lot. So um, <laughs> yeah. I'll I've been looking at um, all the different things that are happening, but mainly from a consumer perspective. And I see that prices are now on the increase, like prices of a lot of stuff are on the increase. And yeah, it's kind of expected. Uh, but uh, how... Does that translate uh, to the space of entrepreneurship? Uh, as you were saying, uh, most people won't do a 180 rotation, but mm -hmm. they have to do something. And I think uh, part of the response is the whole price increase, just so businesses can stay a little bit profitable in uncertain times. But on mm -hmm. the other side, new businesses are now in this weird situation where since prices are increasing, whatever a, a potential entrepreneur had in mind when formulating an idea for what they were going to do to start a business is not applicable anymore. So how do you think that would uh, the price change would affect the space going forward are we going to see more entrepreneurs are we going to see less entrepreneurs or uh, i think actually we might just see more entrepreneurs because the shift in status quo obviously exposes some gaps that and of course in my mind entrepreneurs are you know opportunity spotters and mm -hmm. in, a, in, in any upheaval, actually, whether or not it's a pandemic, there are multiple opportunities that are uncovered that mm. people who are enterprising can take advantage of. Yeah. So I do think definitely there will be an increase in entrepreneurs and not just in the number of entrepreneurs, but in entrepreneurship among entrepreneurs. I don't know if that makes any sense in that what is that at, at some point um, at some point we kind of settle into how we do things because you know the business is ongoing as normal, but um upheaval like um a pandemic kind of forces you to relook at your business and become a lot more innovative in how you approach um, your business. And that's what I mean by entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. um, so, okay. um, and, and the price increase has been good for some and not so good for others. In mm -hmm. that we see a lot more direct to customer approaches from, from producers, primary producers and also from food manufacturers we see a lot more direct to consumer approaches because retail of course has been impacted in the way that it has the boom and I don't know if I should call it a boom because it has been climbing over time in any case but the surge in e-commerce has presented really attractive opportunities to essentially cut out middle people mm -hmm. middle people have had um, a lot more creative in how they source product and serve their customer. So that's really, the price increase is really just part of the upheaval because there are instances okay. where prices have drastically gone down as well. Mm -hmm. So that is just part and parcel of complete upheaval that this type of pandemic has now um, exposed us to. 
Okay, cool. Um, you mentioned something I find interesting uh, amongst a lot of other points, uh, but you said opportunity spotter. Uh, can you share a list of yeah. your five favorite opportunity spotters in, in human history? Oh, that is some question, isn't it? <laughs> Ma, we have time, we have time, we have time. I'll, that I'll keep count. <laughs> um, I really like Richard Branson. Okay, the virgin active guy. The virgin active guy, yes. The virgin active guy. Do you have, do you have anything because, to add about him? Anyway? Uh, yeah, because I mean, he's he's the ultimate opportunity spotter, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, like, elaborate. Know, A person doesn't know. And they listen yeah, now. Yeah, because like, he, he sees a good play and he gets right in there. It doesn't matter industry. It doesn't matter... It doesn't matter location. It really doesn't matter. He sees a nice mm-hmm. opportunity and gets in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and he gets in there to get his hands dirty as well. Because there are other people. And I mean, there are no less entrepreneurs. Those other people who choose to show humanities and kind of reap the rewards. He kind of gets his hands in there as well. You know, as opposed to um, from the perspective of an investor. Um yeah, I mean, there are so many. There are so many. I remember in uh, business school, in fact, we learned of a particular um, entrepreneur who who is essentially the father of innovation as we know it. His name is Schumpeter. So there's actually a whole movement around um, a his uh, type of entrepreneurship because I mean there are many different approaches and types of entrepreneurship but his particular flavor of entrepreneurship actually has has its oh. name from his name yes um oh, they call Joseph. it <laughs> hey? Joseph Schumpeter that's what the internet okay. is showing me now okay yes yes interesting yes. So, and I mean, the whole idea is that the ultimate type of entrepreneurship is where you literally create an industry from scratch and impact every single aspect of our lives just by having created a product that is used by humankind. And I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, and uh, different examples can be given of that Schumpeterian type of entrepreneurship, like um, like what uh, Ford did with motor cars, or, mm-hmm. or create a whole economy, just Wait, revolutionize how things are done. You were cutting um, up when you were talking about Tom Ford. Oh wait, not Tom Ford. Uh, the other Ford. Mark Zuckerberg. Oh, Mark Zuckerberg. Yes, and just in the way that they've created products that have literally revolutionized how the entire world operates. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that's that Schumpeterian type of entrepreneurship. That is really admirable, of course, mm-hmm. as an aspiration. But um, I would hate for people to to be stuck on the fact that if they don't come up with um, an idea that's going to revolutionize how life happens, then they are not equally respectable entrepreneurs. No, everybody mm-hmm. has a role to play, and it's just really great to admire people who have who have created legacies that that you know will survive forever. Okay. That's, who's number three? Oh, I'm still counting. <laughs> Don't you, I'm keeping going. <laughs> um, let me think now. Oh. I, I just admire so many different things about so many different entrepreneurs. 
it's difficult to pinpoint a couple, I must say. Uh, oh, okay. I'll let you slide on this one because yes, you've mentioned yes, maybe we quite can, a few. Maybe, maybe if someone pops to mind, then I'll just um, throw a name oh, out. Okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, you mentioned a few interesting ones. Um, uh, Richard Branson, I think I've heard a few stories about his um, um, ventures and, and how he got into the billionaires club. Um, yeah, it's quite interesting. And I think one quote from him, I don't know if it was from him or from one of his uh, members in the billionaires club, uh, he said, if you can run one business, you can basically run any other business. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that kind of explains the attitude he has with regards to all these different ventures and with regards to what you were talking about, uh, seeing an opportunity and just jumping onto it and getting your hands dirty and just uh, doing all these different things. And, yeah, and I think it's also a recurring thing for most of uh, the most successful entrepreneurs. Uh, if we look at um, your Elon Musk's and who else is a serial entrepreneur? Okay, uh, most of the guys that were yeah, Elon Musk. and it goes it goes yeah. back to the first statements I made. Really, that I, the one thing that I wish I knew about entrepreneurship mm-hmm. when I started out is that um, you know the rest of what we build around it is really just mechanics. The principle mm-hmm. is simple. Principle is simple. There's a need and you have an opportunity to fill that need with the product that the people who have the need will pay for. You have a business. That's it's that basic, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah, I agree one hundred percent with that sentiment. Yeah. So, Schumpeter, uh, as you said the word, I mm-hmm. realize I know it from somewhere. I just don't know where. But <laughs> he, he and the theory that you're talking about, that uh, basically starting a new field and stuff. Mm-hmm. I think Peter Thiel wrote a book called Zero to One. Uh, oh, yeah. It basically covers this where a person comes up with something that there was nothing before that or the closest comparison is that that person took the industry from zero to one and the field just goes on from there and yeah as you're saying a person doesn't necessarily have to have that zero to one idea because they can mm-hmm. just take it from one and go to 10 or go to 100 and go to 1,000. And uh, he also Absolutely. used an example with, yeah, uh, he also used an example with uh, Google is that mm-hmm. Google technically wasn't the first search engine. Uh, uh, yeah. There were a, a lot of other search engines, but Google did search engines in a way that whatever value search engines were, let's just say they were on six, it just multiplied Mm -hmm. that by a Google, which is some number. And even to this day, Google is pretty much the best search engine. After more than 20 years, I don't think. (laughs) There there are others, but, (laughs) you know, even telling a person about another search engine is just like... You're wasting a person's time. Uh, so, yeah, but yeah, and there is there the, is arguments also out there that being a first mover is not the place best place to be because of course yeah. you have to bear a lot of the costs of, mm-hmm. of uh, you know teaching. Which I when other people who are not first movers can essentially run mm-hmm. and capture the markets. Yeah, yeah. So. I feel some type of way about that. Yeah. Um, 
I'm like, um, but I think it's because I'm in the computer space and things are just weird uh, in the computer space. Is a lot of people hide their ideas and want to be secretive and they do things, but I'm like, no, man, do whatever you do as public as possible. Uh, and mm-hmm. even if someone d- tries doing it, you should um, be able to outperform them because ultimately it's your idea and you should already have uh, what it takes to make that idea much better than what this other person could have done had they stolen your idea. But if they do it better than you, if they outperform you, then for me, I feel like they saw something that you didn't see when you attempted or when you thought about doing it. So, hey, uh, we're all living a better life at the end of the day. So regardless of whether you are the one with the bigger bank balance, uh, that is uh, something else. Try again and get to your next idea. Yeah, yeah. And I I I do really hold the view that there's very little that's new in the world right now. And I mean, the times have evolved so much that um, that uh, truly, truly patentable and protectable ideas are few and far between. I think we play around with legalese really a lot of time when we have to look at the patents, to be honest. But um, people must just not get distracted in that way. They must just mm-hmm. get to the business, putting a product in the hands of paying customers. And yeah. the rest of it will unfold as it needs to. And I mean, where where a need arises to protect intellectual property, the need will be clear and stark. So mm-hmm. people don't need to get stuck on, oh, somebody's going to be steal my idea. Um. Although, of course, entrepreneurs do need to have a good level of, quote-unquote, arrogance. But I just find that the highest order of arrogance, without offending anybody, because that's kind of like saying, um, I, I don't know, it just paints a picture that nobody else could possibly be thinking of, of, of you know, a great or better solution for... Yeah. Hello? What, what, what you are happening on here? Yeah. yeah, I'm still here. Can you hear me? Oh, okay. Yeah, now I can hear you. Is my, is my connection? Oh, I think I'm still okay. Yeah, you, you're okay, no? Um, can you repeat the last point there? Because you kind of went silent. Yeah, no, I just think people should not get bogged down with, oh, my ideas will get stolen. They must just get on with the business of getting a product to customers. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. so um, the thing, uh, while we are still on the point of uh, everything that can be done has already been done and all of that, nothing new is, is new under I the sun. I don't think we can say everything because we yeah, don't yeah, know what we don't know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that too. Certainly most but, the thing uh, with, with Trumpeter, and I think maybe where I've heard his uh, name um, before is of apparently what I'm seeing on Wikipedia is that he's an Austrian economist. And mm-hmm. I, did, I did some reading from Austrian economists. I think the main uh, guy I read up on was Ludwig von Mises. Uh, he okay. had this book called Human Action. It's an economics book. And for him, he says economics is a study of human action. And we we generally do stuff um, uh, that eases a discomfort for us. And if a, a person is offering a service or a product that eases discomfort or our own discomfort, we are willing to pay uh, that person for that product or service. Uh, mm-hmm. And as he says this, he also expands on the fact that 
as soon as you ease one discomfort, you get another discomfort. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think he addressed it with the issue of sustenance. Uh, mm-hmm. Like when you are hung, when you are thirsty for water, you would pay whatever money you have for a drink. Mm-hmm. When you are hungry, you'd pay whatever money you have for food. And it, the food doesn't have to be that good, by the way. But mm-hmm. the, the more money... Yeah, uh, the more money you have and the less hungry you are, you have standards now. You want to eat in a clean environment and you want to be served mm-hmm. and th- it has to be served uh, how you expect the food to be served, whatever is written on the menu or whatever. And it just elevates. Uh, you, you don't just want to go out to the restaurant. You want a chef in your own home uh, who gives you the same meals that you would get mm-hmm. in, in the restaurant. And even that escalates to the point where you will find a discomfort. Um, that you would be willing to pay to get rid of as long as someone figures out that, oh, this is actually a discomfort for a certain type of person and I can uh, service that discomfort. So I I really like that book. Um, I've made it a mental human action. Human action. Okay, I should have a look actually. Yeah, I've made made it a mental note even to say that if I'm ever going to partner with someone on a venture, uh, they're going to have to read Human Action and we're going to have to talk about it first. And then I'll, I'll have to understand where they are uh, in some of the topics that were addressed in that book. Huh? Right, right, right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, so, I mean, so what? Well, what, what, what is the, ba- at least how do you believe that it impacts your working relationship with a potential partner though? Would you want for, um, for a potential partner to almost view opportunities as a moving target or be stuck on this one opportunity that's on the table? Well, um, it depends. Uh, I, uh, I think the main reason for me, but uh, let me address your question of opportunity stuff or moving. Uh, I think that's a personality thing. And usually if you are a team of people working towards a goal, it helps to have a mixture of um, different mindsets. So a person who could uh, pay attention to something that we started out doing. And it also helps to have someone who just chases after every moving target. Just having those complementary perspectives kind of helps. So I don't necessarily want a person who sees things like I do. But the main reason why I would want that person to have read the book is so that we could share a vocabulary when it comes to talking about um, business, about economics. And I feel since the book kind of looks at economics from the perspective of the person who's in need of um, getting their needs met, getting rid of their discomforts, and it, it was like a 45 or 48 hour audiobook, and it's uh, one of those books that have volumes and stuff like that. So I feel like if a person has read that book and has gotten something out of that book, then we can share a vocabulary whenever we have to talk about business matters, whenever we have to talk about the venture, because... Um, what I also feel is we talk about the end result and we talk about what is most publicized to talk about, but we don't necessarily share a vocabulary depending on the background we have had as business people or as individuals. So for me, it would just be a way to venture with someone whom I can have the same vocabulary with. And when we're talking business, we can talk looking at uh, the same uh, perspective or uh, uh, points. Uh, as I think is in the same way 
people who admire Richard Branson would uh, read his biography and then you have adopt that vocabulary uh, and uh, yeah when they talk with each other they can have the same vocabulary and yeah come to think of it the most successful businesses kind of shift the vocabulary of business uh, uh, google comes to mind and i hate yeah i hate the fact that google made ads profitable made ad placement as profitable as it is because yeah. a person just comes up with this random ass idea and then their their monetization strategy is adverts yeah yeah well i mean even that even that sort of uh, view of ideas is um I don't know, perhaps somewhat misplaced because I mean, for you, it's a random ass idea. <laughs> But if someone is willing to pay money, then obviously for somebody it's not a random ass idea. And I guess that's why Google is so successful in their placing of ads, isn't it? Because there are yes. people who are find out all kinds of information and those mm-hmm. people will not necessarily have the information ready at hand as in like they don't know yet that that's the information that they would want to discover but mm-hmm. then placing of ads fills that gap doesn't it yes so yeah uh, i'm not knocking google at all because <laughs> they did uh, pretty much the best thing they could have done no yeah. and also uh, they've maintained our access to the to this information and yeah like the internet has a lot of stuff and it just helps having a search engine that works right yeah. but yeah. when it comes yeah. to longevity mm-hmm. ads ads change um how um most ideas work and maybe let me look at social media companies that have to implement all of these rules to please advertisers youtube is one example uh youtube mm-hmm. content creators keep fighting youtube uh, they don't they're not fighting they just get hit by youtube um whenever mm-hmm. advertisers complain and yeah i could have an example for almost every uh social media platform mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. i feel the m- main root is that the monetization strategy invites them to get bullied by the paying customer. Mm, okay. Yeah, invites them to get know. bullied by the paying customer. Yeah. Yeah, that's mm. an interesting perspective. Yeah. I mean, of course I, I would prefer my YouTube experience to not have 10 ads. <laughs> and things have just moved so fast in the ad world at YouTube. Mm-hmm. Goodness. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I guess it would be it would be best to ha- just have that balance really to be honest mm-hmm. because um one would think also what is the alternative? Because you know these things must be maintained and there must be continuous innovation. And then I think we've had a conversation this conversation before actually that um that it, is it better to have ads is it better to pay because things must be paid for one way or the other mm-hmm. yeah yeah so my feeling now is let the people pay really find that the people pay mm-hmm. do, do you find that that is uh, universal as a market i i know in, in terms of at least that's my impression at least that particularly when you look at technology products that uh, people in South Africa are a lot less willing to pay than for example people in the US. I, I don't know if that's what you found as well. Um for me that's just a temporary thing uh, uh that we will probably grow out of as soon as we come to terms with a lot of things and obviously a lot of other things are going to change as well with how we consume the internet so one the internet is expensive and 
our best alternative is in the physical world. Uh, but as people start using some of these uh, internet services, they will gravitate more and more to using them. And as people start paying for these services, they will gravitate to having a budget for their online subscriptions. Uh, so you are saying you hate seeing 10 ads on YouTube. Soon enough, you'll be like, you know what? I'm tired. Let me just pay this 50 rand and not have ads on my YouTube anymore. And YouTube will gladly accept that money. And soon enough, there will, yeah. there will be kids who have not paid for anything else other than online uh, uh, services. Uh, mm -hmm. So our parents, some of my brothers, some of my uncles still would prefer to pay DSTV over uh, Netflix or over YouTube. Yeah. Me, on the other hand, I will not. I, I will not pay DSTV. Let's not even negotiate. I'm not even mm. going to say Hey, whatever. I'm not even gonna give my reasons. I'm not paying DSTV over Netflix or <laughs> over. I'd rather pay YouTube even. I don't need yeah, it to pay. I have an ad blocker, but I would rather pay YouTube than pay DSTV. And right. I think that's where most people are going. And yeah, the I other thing, the other side. Also, I know that some of these platforms they and 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 I suppose that's the typical approach. You start a free and you charge at some point. I remember when I was quite shocked. I, I, I used to use Medium quite a lot previously. And in the last kind of couple of months, I went back because I hadn't been on it for, for a year or two. A lot of people have And been. I was shocked that you have to pay. You know, oh, yeah. yeah um, there's a limit now. There's a limit. So a limit? Doing... Is that what we call it? So yeah, they're doing the anti-ads perspective, right? But I have a yes. lot of people against medium. Yeah. Hey. I think medium put themselves in between way too much content now. Right? Um it's one, you you have to be part of their program to monetize. Uh, I feel that sucks. And uh, yeah, there's so many things. And what I used to be on Medium on, I can't go there anymore because the people I, I follow, I barely see the content from them. Uh, my page is full of other stories that I don't really know why I'm being shown. And uh, there's so many things. But, and then you get exposed to the things that you want to get exposed for. It's, it's just such a weird think... conundrum. I've, I've paid actually, but I've still not seen the things I, I wanted to see because they are trying to make the most out of um, the money. You know, and I think this is also the other thing where monetization is hard, especially on the internet age, because we they treat it as if we are paying them to chow our time. So YouTube, <laughs> you, the YouTube algorithm is maximized for watch time. If YouTube gets mm -hmm. you to watch a video and uh, uh, watch more videos for longer, it's going to recommend all these videos that people watch for longer. And all these other mm -hmm. platforms are doing the same thing. Medium is showing me articles that have titles that I would want to click on and read and uh, read to the finish. But I'd have no business reading most of these things. Let me see what's on the Medium homepage. Mm. So, and I don't even want to pay for that. I just want to read the authors I follow, which is why I paid in the episode. And because I enjoy what these guys are saying, and I want them to make enough money to continue writing. Uh, yeah. But now Medium, here's an article, the self-help world needs to stop ignoring its privilege. A four-minute read. What do I have to gain reading that? Why is that at the top of my Medium page? <laughs> so yeah. yeah so i think that's yeah. the other 
such tough thing with monetization because um, what's this? What are you fidgeting on? Yeah. Like, uh, think uh, it's, it's a hard. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, so with other businesses, it's much easier because customers buy more of the product, customers use more of the service. But on the internet, we are literally transacting with time. So, so am I paying that. you to waste my time? I do feel like, um, I mean, you did already touch on it, that um, people should make a habit of dabbling in multiple business uh, models. Um, You know, you might be, you might believe that people pay you for, um, you know, for a particular product. But you should, and on an ongoing basis, explore other reasons why people would pay you. I don't know if that makes sense. And you did mm. mention already from the book that you mentioned that, you know, opportunity exists and people progress yeah. beyond So that for me is almost leaving money on the table in that when you know this is the way that, uh, you know, you exchange of money happens with your customer, it really, it really is worthwhile to explore how other areas of um, getting that exchange of money from customers can also work. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool. All right, Flo. Um... Yeah, let me get back to the structure of the show, though. Um, <laughs> Was there a structure? <laughs> there's always a structure. We also talk about scary stuff uh, on stage okay. five. Right? So what's the most scariest experience you've had in the entrepreneurship uh, journey? Scary. Scary. Mm. Um, the thing that I have at the back of my mind as um, a, a slight fear, if I could call it that, is just the idea of um, of possibly not reaching my goal. And 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 I and, and I mean, you know, it's it's almost like an oxymoron in that. I do believe that opportunities are are moving targets, so mm-hmm. there will always be another one around the corner. But just not finding that level of com- contentment that okay, I feel like I've, I've arrived now, regardless of what I'm busy with at any one time. And I don't know if I've even discovered what having arrived will. will looks like or would feel like for me or what would need to be happening for me to feel like okay like I feel like I'm uh, uh, you know um, I'm just relishing the thing that I'm doing you know but I just have a niggly feeling at the back of my mind that oh I don't want to come to the end and not feel like I've really done what I could do you know <laughs> mm-hmm. But generally, I wouldn't say I, I, I wouldn't say I have a, um, a particular fear that I can pinpoint. Of course, there's the normal everyday fear of and it's, it's probably more like um, a, a diminished confidence when you have to approach something new or you are starting a new initiative or you're approaching a customer or you know, that, that's kind of like the routine things that you have to get past on a daily basis. I don't say I have any particular mm-hmm. fear. Okay. Right. Cool stuff, man. All the best yeah. with all the ventures. What's my fear? In which space? In, in which regard? 
in the whole area of entrepreneurship? Mm. I, mm, I think for me, it's, what, what is it? It's this weird thing I've noticed, okay? and I hope it doesn't happen to me, mm-hmm. is the main issue is self-confidence. Self-confidence is a huge problem in this world. You, sh- you shouldn't have too much confidence in yourself. Um, you should, yes, have be confident. But the problem I've noticed is believing that you're doing something right to the point where if the result is not what you're expecting, you believe that everyone else is wrong and everyone else just doesn't see what you're seeing. So basically an artist dropping an album and they believe this is the best album in the world, but then that album does very poor numbers and very few people and the artist for that album and then the artist then believes uh, that the game is sleeping on him nope Mm -hmm. no one is sleeping on him there's just uh, better artists in the world and uh, people relate more to other music and Mm -hmm. uh, artists have set up teams to hustle better and stuff like that so that is my biggest fear. I hope I never get to a point where I'm like, wow, this thing I'm working on is so good. It just has to work. And then I start hating everyone else who has other things that are working and blah, 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 blah. Because I don't see where I'm not uh, doing the things right. I don't see what other people see. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. That's interesting. And... It, it's weird because I kind of did something where I was like, when I attempt a project, I, sh- I don't want to push it via uh, my close circle of friends. Okay? Mm-hmm. Just so I, I can get an honest response. The first few responses, at least, I, I hope are honest responses. Because, hey, right. Our friends and our families believe in us way too much and they (laughs) start making us think other things. And then when reality hits it, it's too late for us to turn back. So, yeah. Right, right. We should should develop an internal engine that does that for us, actually. I just think, and I I know for me, I'm probably my worst critic when it comes to whatever projects I, um, I, I think about. So mm-hmm. I generally just flog it to death with doubt before I'm convinced. <laughs> yeah, well, but if you do that a lot, uh, it becomes a f- your thing, you know. It becomes a, nah, man, I flogged this thing to death for the past six months. How is it not working? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so for me, mm-hmm. that is the issue. So at um, your working pro- process, you're used to it, and you still need society's response to yeah, yeah. what you're doing, and you still need to understand what society has to say about you relative to everyone else. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course, but, you have also the maturity and the balance to view it as what it is, as somebody's mm-hmm. opinion and perspective, so that you can yeah. make a judgment. I mean, the, the 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 thing that entrepreneurs need as well is that bullishness that, you know what, I think I'm convinced I'm right in this area, but also yeah. have the maturity and proper sense to know when that has run it's uh, you know when the road when the tarmac is done there you know because mm-hmm. I mean tarmac cannot continue forever yeah yep so yeah it's a hard thing for a person to actually know uh, when they really need to flip a switch yeah and true. outside 
thank you very much for having this conversation flo mm. thank you we, it was interesting it was interesting mm-hmm. yeah we are going to have another one about the podcasting space soon and yeah you're probably going to be talking mostly about uh, what you're doing on your podcast we back entrepreneurs oh entrepreneurs sorry <laughs> yes learn it learn it because i mean i i and i suppose i'm biased in that area i do believe agripreneurs are the ones who are going to lead the way in moving mm-hmm. moving our continent our, our continent generally into the next phase and it is ah. uh, the um the frontier at the moment and mm-hmm. the forerunner is going to be agriculture okay i'll line up my questions based on that <laughs> uh, statement alone uh, good <laughs> good uh, shop shop okay okay lovely thank you so much it was great chatting well, uh...